What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got Sean Vanderhoven. But we were working together as a team. We were really coming together and we were we were the, all the strategic capability and talents that were completely inactive were activated. And people started to work together to create a solution that we couldn't have come up with prior to that to solve the problems. And um, it was it was a wild success. And this simple thing of just listening to people. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Well, and I was thinking about before we got started here when you were telling me about a couple of guys that you feel like do a great job of this kind of listening. Um, and, and we should we should hear more about just the interviews you're doing in general. But do you want to talk a little bit about Ralph and about Will? Yeah, sure. So I was um, I was at, um, uh, interviewing Ralph, the CEO of ING, and we were talking to him about empathy and how he's used empathy to innovate in the – you know, when he was trying to turn things around from the downturn of this terrible economic crisis, um, you know, in the in you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and what did he do from an empathic perspective to be able to try to you know get the company on track as we were all recovering from this global recession? And I was I was just stunned by him out of all the CEOs that I've interviewed on how committed he was to understanding from an empathic perspective the entire company. And here's just a few things that he said that he did. And these are things. Here's the thing: these are things that we all know to do. You know, um, I, I, I love um, this book, Getting More. Um, you know, it, I think it's uh, Peter Diamond. I think is his name. He he says this thing that true principles are invisible to us until we name them and then start using them. And I think that empathy can be invisible to us. We know it. It's like not rocket science. When we hear it, we're like, oh, of course. But we don't do it. And what Ralph did was he said, okay, you know, as he took took over, you know, he was chairman. And then um, as in his role as CEO, he started to say, you know what I've got to do? I've got to start working with these people. And he went out and started working. How long ago was this interview, by the way? Um, four months ago. Okay. So this so, this is him like today with his 84,000 staff and $40 billion a year revenue. This isn't sometime in history. Yeah, right. No, exactly. This is totally relevant to right now. And and, um, and I'll share, I mean, what they've done is, is really brilliant over there. So what, 
So ultimately what he said is he would start, he would, he, he said, I, I got some customers and I started to do the work that we just ask, uh, you know, people in ING to do. I start, I started to just try to, you know, provide financial services to them. And he said, I started to go and work for two weeks at a time in different offices all around the country. I mean, all around the, the continent. And I would literally just work side by side uh, with, with, with people that were doing this work. So I could understand and see from their perspective uh, what it was that mattered to them, why they did what they did, what was challenging for them, what their wins were that they wanted. And you can imagine how this would feel for anybody, you know, all of a sudden the CEO turns up and says, hey, can I work in your office for a few weeks? That would, you know, completely unnerve everybody. But he said he worked really hard to just say, listen, I'm really just trying to learn and understand. No one's going to get fired or reprimanded or, or in trouble. And he said the insights that he gained from that, he realized that he needed to start doing these town hall meetings where he would travel around and meet with various groups of people to talk about the problems that he was seeing firsthand. And to really listen to them further on what kind of insights that they had, why the problems were caused, and how they could turn things around. And, and he started to learn about the culture of the company as it really was and what were the drivers inside on, on, and how they got into trouble saying yes to customers that were, were you know, really not a great fit for ING and how they got into trouble you know, working on projects that were side projects and they weren't really the projects that mattered from the corporation's perspective as a whole. Then he started to do these – he would do these meals with people where he would grab groups of people together and eat with them and talk with them and listen to them. And what he learned out of all of that was that the company was not aligned. And so he, he started to you know, create very clear goals at the top that then could be disseminated all the way down through the organization. And in this whole process, he ended up doing surveys with a group of 7,000 people to try to understand what it was that they really cared about and what they were trying to accomplish. Then 14,000 people um, reached out over and over again, listening to this group of people to try to understand what it was that they were trying to accomplish and what mattered to them, and on and on and on. And I could go on about the listening that this, that this leader was trying to do. And in the end, in simplicity, which is amazing, they came up with this, this system of placemats where they would come up with the, the year and quarterly goals from a corporate perspective. And they would print them on a breakfast placemat, you know, like the kind you eat your cereal on. And then on the back side of that would be that department that that individual worked in's goals and how they aligned with, uh, you know, the company. And he, he would literally say to people as he'd do these town halls, uh, these town hall meetings, if anybody asks you to do something out of our top priorities that we know we're aligned, you can just call me. You can just have your boss or have your manager give me a call or you can just give me a call. And he gave his personal information. <laughs> well, wow. he, you can imagine he didn't receive a lot of calls. But, but think about you know what they did in this process, and I missed this earlier, where they clarified the company's values as they were currently being practiced. They listened to what people did in ING and what the value was behind that, and so they re they re you know crystallized and clarified their values as a representation of what was really going on in the company, not just you know some ideals that they slapped on a wall and said this is these are our values. So the combination of all these things, what I saw was a tremendously courageous, empathic leader. And you look at where ING is today. They are killing it. They continue to just really do well uh, you know, in the world, in Europe. And I think that his ability to listen and to really take seriously you know, what's going on inside of every single one of our employees and what do they understand that's important what versus what we think at the top has created a set of innovation inside of that company and a set of loyalty that is, is really difficult to accomplish in a company of that size. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, we just had a, we just had an author on the show, um, 
Max Brown wrote this book called Leadership Vertigo about how often leaders think they're doing a way better job with their staff than they actually are. Like the leader's opinion of the job they're doing for their staff and the staff's opinion of the le- the job the leader is doing are so, so far apart. And when they get to stay in their ivory towers and, and believe whatever filtered report has gotten to them, no wonder they come to these conclusions, right? But, um, you know, I went to Japan with the Shingo Institute touring like the Toyota factories and Honda and Nissan and their, even their suppliers using all this lean manufacturing and this kind of stuff, right? And this principle of like walking, I can't remember the Japanese name for it. I'm sure somebody will email me and tell me, but the idea of actually walking the floors is this thing that's like very ingrained in that culture. And you look at the way that some of those organizations just caught their American competitors completely by surprise and wiped the floor with them. And, you know, this, this connection where the people at the top actually have their own personal experience with the front lines. No, no wonder they were making better decisions when they had better information by actually making those connections, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't it amazing? Think about this just from a family perspective. So I'll tell you a personal story. My 14-year-old Joseph, he's a 14-year-old like every, every kid out there. And, um, and he has uh, his ups and downs. I've got a, a 12-year-old Seth and then my 10-year-old is Samuel. Well, I was um, I was trying to get him to engage in a religious uh, um, event that you know we do in our church, and he didn't want to go. He didn't want to do it, and I was really trying to force him to do it. And it turned into this big blow up between the two of us, and um, and I ended up sending him to his room using my power and authority as a dad. And I went in there, effective, <laughs> yeah, exactly, just like a perfect, you know, just like a you know tradition, you know, exactly like like I do, right? Just a little arrogant, a little like, hey, listen, I'm going to use my authority to let you know that I'm the boss, and you're going to do what I want. So I, I go into his I go into his room, and he's sitting on his bed, and. I was going in his room to give him a piece of my mind and to let him know that he had disrespected me and that he was going to do what I asked. And as I walked the room, I felt this little kind of feeling. And they're going to just, uh, I'm trying not to be emotional here, but I, I felt this feeling like maybe I should just try to listen to him for a little bit. I mean, obviously, it's a little bit of hypocr- you know, a little bit of hypocrisy on my part to be running around teaching everybody to be empathic and to listen to others, and I can't even do it with my fourteen year olds. <laughs> And, I, and believe me, I'm a hypocrite a lot with this because it's hard. Um, and so I, I decided I was going to listen to him, and he's going to kill me if he if he ever hears this episode that you and I are doing. <laughs> so just like don't don't e- don't email him. I'll make sure that he doesn't know about your program. We won't Snapchat it. He'll never okay, find uh, out. Please don't. Oh yeah, that would be that would be the end of me. So um, so I look at him and I say, Hey Joe, um, tell me what I could have done better in that scenario. And you can imagine he had a lot to say. <laughs> so I started to to restate and listen to him. It wasn't but just five minutes into that conversation that we were talking about some really tough situations that were going on in his life at school that I wasn't aware of. Mm. And they were hard. They were Some of them were a little bit humiliating. And I just felt this just, um, you know, and then we get out 30 minutes later. Um, I, we're, we're embracing each other. We're, uh, there's tears for both of us. And without asking him, he comes out of his room about 15 minutes later and says, oh, dad, I totally want to go to that program. Um, um, I'm, I'm going to get my stuff on and get ready right now. And I said, oh, no, Joe, no, seriously, you don't need to do that. And he just said, no, no, dad, I want to do that. And, and I wasn't trying to manipulate him. And that wasn't my goal. But because he felt understood by me as I started to understand him and I realized that the program that I was asking him to go to was interconnected to some of the difficult social situations that he was experiencing, um, I realized that I was actually asking him to do something that was that was hurt that was hurtful to him that was hard for him, 
And I completely had changed the way that I, you know, was going about it. And I felt a little remiss and he had forgiven me for, for the, the approach that I had taken. But I just think about the contrast of what was going on. Me in my own world as a dad, going to force my son to do what I want to him wanting to do this, wanting to face this without me even asking and me realizing that I had hardly even understood what was going on inside of him. And I just want to then take that same idea and go back to work. You know, people say this all the time to me. Well, that's, you know, we got personal, you know, let's just try to keep this professional. You know, we got personal stuff and professional stuff. And I don't know what they mean. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It's all personal. I just live one life. My boss being mad at me. I feel that personally. Seriously, I just, I'm just living one life here. I'm just one person. Uh, and I feel like that our jobs are so personal. Our careers are so personal. They, they take over half of our lives in a lot of respects. And, you know, I just, uh, I, I just think that a lot of times we, like me, just want to tell people what to do. And we don't care about the context of their life. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's harsh to say that we don't care, right? But it's, but I know exactly what you mean. I think about... Um, you know, on the show, we're, we're consistently trying to get people to tell us about innovation. And so we, hopefully through somebody else's story, we can hear a spark for how to do it better and whatever we're working on. Right. And the last episode I recorded, I don't know what, what order Lisa will come out in, but it's, uh, Dara, she's, um, she works for one of these organizations that's backed by the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. They're trying to find a vaccine for tuberculosis. So, you know, instead of it being a thousand dollars a person to treat people, you just, you know, a $5 or less vaccine can solve it instead. Right. And she, she gets to go to all these fancy things. You know, she last week, she was just at this thing with Kobe Bryant and Jessica Alba and general Stanley McChrystal and all these fancy types at the Milken conference, global conference. And, um, she gets to go to meetings with Bill and Melinda Gates and, you know, this big stuff. And one of the things that she said was like the most impactful thing in her career was, was something a boss had told her early on, um, or had done for her early on. And it's really in line with this IDEO kind of like Stanford design school, um, idea of actually observing people in, mm-hmm. in person and like having real conversations with them instead of just reports, which, you know, when you talk about these empathetic conversations that I just keep hearing IDEO over and over, but her boss actually sent her to Kenya and actually sent her to these different places around the world that their work was affecting. And that, contact with the end recipient and and where the actual work is happening she feels like is the competitive advantage in this world where now she's more removed from it and so and it's turned into her like her junior staff she'll try to send them places even if there's not really much for them to do she has them physically go there to write the report mm-hmm. even though it could be done that you know and you're thinking well, this is a plane ticket this is time is it really worth the expense but there's i mean everything you're saying i'm just hearing this like extreme value for contact with the end recipient, with the frontline staff, with the, like the actual humanness of what they're going through rather than, you know, Jess and all my all knowing knowledge about how it all works and just hurry up and do it my way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And I, and I appreciate what you said earlier that, that we do care and that's, that's consistent with, um, uh, if I combined the, you know, the, the thought that you had earlier is that, you know, that, that people do care and, and also that, you know, well, if I don't know, I don't care, right. Yeah. If I just go on my assumptions and I don't know this hard thing that you're working through or that you've got to get home from work at this time to pick up your kid from daycare. And so me giving you that assignment at the end of the day is really causing you a lot of stress. Like if I don't know, I don't care. But- yeah. And that's, I like how you said that that's the synthesis between those two ideas and you just did it for me. Thank you. Is that, 
a lot of times because we don't empathize with others and that's not a part of our habitual operation. It's not a part of the way that we, op- we function. That's not what we are thinking to do. The caring that we have is invisible. Um, you know, I, you know, you tell me earlier about this nonprofit work that you're in, which is just incredible, by the way, and I'm, I'm, I'm moved by it. Um, you know, saving children from, you know, terrible you know, sex trafficking scenarios, you know, a lot of times with these nonprofits, with our employees, with our family members, it is our lack of awareness of the context and the story of uh, people's lives and what's, and then what's going on today. Um, connecting those ideas together that makes it actually impossible for us to care. So if we learn how to make empathizing and listening a habit and a part of the way that we operate with others, it it brings our heart to the table in ways that just won't happen otherwise. <laughs> and I've seen some of the most arrogant, um, all-knowing leaders become the most understanding, incredible innovators through empathy. There's something, there's something about that connection, right? Like I'm thinking about the folks that introduced us, right? Like Amy and Nick over at Big Monocle. And like we, we had Amy Stelhorn on the show. And I think about like, you know, she has this big fortune 500 client, 50 billion a year. You think whatever they whatever they mandate is, that's what I'm going to make. And she goes back to them with like, yeah, I know you want to talk about that. Why don't we actually go ask your customers if they care about that first, though? Yeah. <laughs> and she like, she, you know, she's this tiny little design agency, first big client. And she's like essentially backing them down to help them. Right. And it ends up that the client, you know, the clients care way more about making sure the photos don't get wiped off their device than they care yeah. about some other yeah. security yeah. thing. Right. Yeah. And or, or like I'm thinking about Nick you know, and when he and I were running this investment fund, it's, it's funny you talk about all these things, which I know can come across as like soft or touchy feely or whatever. That's a criticism. I think a lot of this work. And I think about this idea of really caring Nick and I, we, we owned this energy company with, um, it was a partnership with this $35 billion energy company in Canada. And, and we had co-invested with a couple of very financially well-to-do guys. And one of the guys was a, a billionaire that, We'd have these board meetings at his house and it wasn't like some like huge hard thing, but he would consistently be stopping us and saying, Hey guys, you know, I know us around this table own 90 something percent of the company, but we do have those other really small shareholders. Would they be happy with us making this decision for them? Like, are we, have mm-hmm. we thought through what this is like for them? And I'm thinking like, mm-hmm. that guy owns less than 1% of the company. Mm-hmm. You're this like, you know, business genius in my mind. And mm-hmm. you want to stop all of us so we can think about what this is like for him. And like, anyways, he, he set this example for me. But when you were talking about that habit, mm-hmm. I feel like that's one of the guys that really set that example for me of making a habit of consistently, like, it's not even that it's that hard, mm-hmm. but unless you practice it, it's not going to come out by accident, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think this is the this is the exciting part about this. You know, I know that in my marriage and my relationship with my kids and then also in the workplace, um, you know, all the way going back to that experience that I had being bitten by that dog and, and healing through this empathic framework that Martha took me through all those years. One of the things that I know is that people can learn this and it's, it's simple. It's through practice. It's learning how to listen and ask open-ended questions, learning how to suspend your judgment while you're listening to somebody and really visualize what they're trying to say. And I, I, I feel like it's such an incredible gift to be able to spend my life teaching people how to do this because what I, what I watch them do is, um, 
you know, develop a little habit, a little practice each day to listen to people. And they almost all, they almost know how to do it completely, but just with a little bit of help, a little bit of extra knowledge and some skill role playing some practice, I watch transformations take place in their personal life and in at, at home and at work. And it's, it is something that you can turn into a habit. You can, what we like to create these little things for companies called empathy sprints, where after we've spent a full day empathizing with a group of executives or a team, a group of people, a startup, whoever it is that we're working with, you know, they, they, we, we work on solving a problem and we use empathy to uh, ideate and create a solution that none of them had thought of prior to, to, you know, a really incredible solution. As a matter of fact, I was just working through this with uh, Big Monocle. We started this process at the Amy's group. And, and you're talking about your new company, Up, right? Yeah, right. This is, the, this is the company that I'm running now, Up. Yeah, thanks for that. And, and so at Up, we, we, what we'll do is we'll teach people People have to do these empathy sprints. So we've spent a full day teaching people how to, you know, uh, use empathy to solve a problem that really matters to them. It could be a big revenue problem. It could be an internal problem that they have. But they pick something that's really relevant, and that's really important when you're teaching empathy. We've got to go with something that's real. And and then what we do is we we leave the company with these uh, twelve minute empathy sprints, where for five minutes a day, I mean, for twelve minutes a day, I listen to you. Let's say you and I were design partners. Whatever problem you're working on or whatever things you're trying to accomplish, I empathize with you for five minutes a day. And then you turn around and empathize with me for five minutes. And then we take two minutes to determine if we've had any insights or seen any new obstacles that need to be addressed together as a team. That little 12-minute exercise sets the stage for an empathetic disposition the rest of the day and the rest of the week. And, and what comes of that is we start to become aware of what's really going on inside of each other and the context for each other's lives. And that opens up the door to build trust in a new way, to come up with solutions in a new way. And people can learn this. And this is what I wanted to emphasize. We can all learn how to be empathic. And the better we – the more we try it, the more we realize when we're not doing it, which is pretty much 90% of the time for me. And that then – you know, I, I, I will stumble across these times when I'm not listening to my wife, when I'm not listening to customers. And then it will, a little trigger will occur and I'll go, oh, use the empathy framework. And then I'll start back through that conscious path of being empath- empathetic towards other people and then I get right back to where I want to, really working on the real stuff, really exploring and connecting with the things that are really going on. Yeah. I noticed that like it is that contagious thing. Like once someone listens to us, it's easy to want to listen to others. Um, and it, it does, there's very much that setting the tone kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, ch- changing gears a little bit, we'd like to ask all our guests um, a few questions. You, you've already brought up uh, a great book for people. We'll put the link to that on your show notes page here for on ideation collective. Um, but we'd like to ask people for advice for our charity child rescue and, and getting more people involved in that and, what advice would you have for us on that front? Well, um, I mean, I'm going to try to do my best here, just thinking about what would you know what it would be um, helpful on this. But I think that when we just remember that whenever we're trying to get somebody to be involved in any kind of a program, um, whether it's child rescue or you know a different type of nonprofit, that whoever we're asking, it's all about them. Um, you know, sometimes I think that we can approach things where. Um, you know, we, we know that we're, we're, we're involved in an, an incredible cause. And so we just want to tell people about the incredible cause and, and hopefully that will be enough for them just to jump on, you know, just jump on board and that they'll just, uh, get, help us with, with, uh, funding or help us with a uh, talent, um, donation. But I think that when we remember, sometimes that just doesn't happen though. And you know that, and that the frustration on, on, on how we just don't sometimes get the adoption that we would like. And so I, I, and, and again, I don't want to be too bold here because I'm sure that you guys are already doing this, but I think that when we reframe everything that we're doing to remember that it's all about the people that we're asking to get involved. 
it's, it's about them. It's about what they want. Um, whether it's feeling good about themselves because they're helping children they get out of the, the pretty most, pretty much the most loathsome activity on the planet. Or if it's because they, um, um, you know, they want to be seen a certain way or that they want to have so many hours, um, dedicated towards a, a nonprofit or whatever their reason is that whenever we're going to ask anybody for help, we have to really spend some time thinking about and designing activity that helps us really understand what do they want. What It's all about them. And so instead of saying I, we say you. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, I mean, uh, you know, from an empathic perspective, just really kind of looking at all the strategies that you're implementing and ask yourself the question, you know, have we answered the, the um uh, the why question for them. You know, that, but that's a classic nonprofit problem. I mean, it's in the marketing of lots of other companies. Of let me grab your attention and have you and let's talk about me mm-hmm. instead of talking about the customer and relating it to the customer's world and stuff. Yeah. I, I think that's solid advice. Um, what about um, as far as uh, I feel like I feel like we've done a great job talking about uh, Martha and someone who had a big influence on you early in your life. Um, but one of the stories we didn't get to talk about was um, was the CEO of, of Dow Jones and why, you know, of all these different people you've interviewed, you felt like uh, he, he's really doing a good job of this stuff. What, what was it about interviewing him that had an effect on you? He, you know, he's on this. Uh, he's been tasked to digitize the Wall Street Journal and other publications that they have. And, you know, he's coming into a really traditional company, you know, over 120 years, incredible talent, I mean, the, you know, the best talent in the world from a journalism perspective. And he, instead of just coming up with a white tower strategy and just throwing that out there, what he did was he started to travel throughout the company and really listen to the business at all sorts of different levels. And so one thing that he did particularly, which I really appreciated, was, well, there's two things. One is that he would grab just various people in all levels of the organization, and they weren't always managers. They were just you know somebody at a particular level, and he would bring those that cross-section, as you might say together in a, as a group. And he would uh, really talk to them about problems that they were seeing and what they thought that the solutions were. And in that is a recognition. In his actions, he was essentially saying to everybody, I want contrast. I don't want to just hear it from the direct reports that I have. I want to be able to understand and bring together various groups in the company that have talents and skills. And, and I want to I want to use the contrast and their differences to create something better than what we would come up with if we just work in silos. And that is empathic in nature. The idea is that, you know, each of us have something unique to contribute and we need to get to that. And so he used this empathy framework to go and listen to these various, you know, collections and collages of of talent in the company to try to come up with better solutions. The second thing that he did is he, he recognizes that he told me that, that when people are around the dinner table, and you're meeting that need of feeding them and just having a social experience that after the food has been served and you're kind of in this intimate environment and you just kind of, you know, the ties off and you're sitting on the couch, that that's some of the best time to really try to find out how people are doing. And so, you know, as he goes throughout the business, he just has this, you know, essentially the idea of uh, uh, let's just eat together let's and then let's create a space when we feel fulfilled to try to really talk about what's going on in the business and he's doing this once again with people at all different levels. These are listening strategies. These are empathy strategies where he wants to walk in other people's shoes. He wants to see things from their perspective. And they're killing it over there uh, at the Dow Jones. It's, uh, you know, they're really making massive headway in both their mobile and 
um, uh, their their strat- digitization strategy. And I, I could attribute a lot of that to um, the way that he's using empathy to take advantage of the talent that's in his house. As a matter of fact, real quick, just one thing that he said to me that I love is he said, Sean, we have all the talent in the world to solve any problem. We don't need to bring in McKinsey or some other group. He's like, the problem that we've had in the past is we just haven't brought each other together uh, in ways that help us take advantage of the talent that we have in the house. Mm. That combination is pretty unique, pretty important. (laughs) Well, you know, I I was thinking as you were talking and, and just different stuff that I've read about what you've accomplished. And I think there's a lot of folks that would like to be interacting with, you know, high level thought leaders like the CEOs you've just mentioned, or whether it's any of the other C-level people at an Apple or a Google. Do you have any advice about approaching people like that and respecting their time and making it interesting for them to want to be a part of what you're doing or just how you've approached those people in the past and why you think you've been successful at getting them involved? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it comes back to, and it's almost cliche to say it, but, I, but I'm just going to say it. The same thing that we talked about earlier, um, you know, on, on advice for any nonprofit out there that's trying to get people involved, you know, it, it's got to be about them. Um, there's, there, you know, it's got to be, you got to try to find a win for them. What do they want? You know, is there a story that they want told? Is there a project that matters to them that, you know, you can find some kind of a way to be able to, to benefit them, to be able to make space for a 15 minute call or, you know, a, um, uh, you know, a 20 minute interview. And I think a lot of times, once again, we're just, we're just so hungry to accomplish our golden goals that we aren't able to really unlock uh, the power that lies in other people's uh, desires and the goals that they have. And so we don't find solutions, creative solutions to be able to give them what they want. And sometimes we assume that we don't have anything that they want. And, and I think that's rubbish. I think that when we really, you know, um, work with our team or, you know, you know, put our thoughts down on paper and we really try to empathize and think about what somebody else may want, we might not always succeed, but a lot of times we'll come up with really clever ideas that can give somebody what they're looking for genuinely, not to manipulate. So then that way there can be a, an exchange of, uh, of fulfillment. And I think that... So have you, to- yeah, will you research? Will you just try to find somebody that knows them? Is it just the kind of questions like if you, do you cold call them and just try and start with the, like, how do you discover that stuff so that you can come to them with an offer in context of what's important to them? Typically, I um, it's a little bit of luck and then also uh, a little bit of strategy. So all of what you said, all of the above, I've tried everything from cold calling to reading about what they're trying to accomplish and trying to, you know, cover that in some way. Um, you know, it can, a lot of times it will come from a referral where I'll, I'll touch one person and then, and then let them know what I'm trying to accomplish and then they'll be helpful to make the introduction. So, um, I, but I think that you know, the if I look at the formula that I use, it is, you know, I'm right now I'm trying to tell the story of empathic disruptors, people that have used empathy to completely disrupt an idea, a team or a company Make a uh, breakthrough. or an entire industry. And so as I find those people that I think are really interesting and they are, you know, they've done things that um, are in line with the story that I'm trying to tell. Well, first off, that's a little bit of a hit, if you know what I mean. Because I'm, I'm asking them to go and tell a story about the success that they've had in a way that I want to cover it. And, and, and typically people want those stories covered if they've done something wonderful and you happen to be covering those types of stories. So, you know, I think that, you know, at the, at the, at the very basic level, you know, you've got to try to find good fit. 
and that there's a there's a there's an obvious reason on why you would be a good person to meet with them to try to tell their story. Um, the second piece is is then to try to figure out okay. You know, what do I have or who do I know that um, uh, where I could try to, you know, be beneficial to them in some kind of a way? And there again, sometimes I just blank out when I try to when I write the answers to those questions. I feel like I just have nothing. Um, I just don't feel like I've got anything that I can give them. Uh, and I'll usually go and ask people for advice. I'd say, hey, if you were going to meet with such and such, what, what would you try to give them? They, if they seem to, you know, pretty much have everything in this in this life. Um, and sometimes I'll get some good recommendations, and then other times I'll come up with nothing. But I still try. I still really spend a lot of time working on the question: What can I do for them that would be beneficial? What kind of story can I tell about them? that um, they care about, that's meaningful to them. And usually that's when I get the hits. I mean, what we haven't talked about is the many, many, many people that wouldn't talk to me and wouldn't meet with me. Um, and and, and it, I, just, I just couldn't make that connection. I just didn't have enough to be able to uh, really serve them for them to be willing to open up some time. Yeah. So um, we appreciate all the time you've made for us today. Um, besides people, you know, coming and checking out uh, – up and and what you're getting going any other parting advice you'd have for for innovators out there um if we haven't covered it and i I try to think about that question thoughtfully for a second i think it's this idea if there's one idea that i think drives me it's this it's that you know in isolation and on our own we can create you know something pretty good but we all know that through synthesis and call it, you know, really good collaboration. We can create something better with others. If you believe that, and if you're listening to this program, then what better thing can we learn how to do than to listen to those people that will help us create something better? Developing habits of listening empathically and asking questions empathically is a habit that all of us can learn that will help us really get what we want and help others get what they want on their way. And so if you believe that through other people, you can create something better than what you could do on your own, then I would say that um, take this conversation seriously. It will just open up the brilliant things that you've already been creating in your life. Yeah, that's great. You know, it, it, it just makes so much sense, that connection, right? Like I, I think about that. Um, I don't know if you've read Tom Kelly's book, Creative um, Confidence. Creative love. Confidence, right? And he's yeah. talking about the GE guy who's so excited about the MRI machine. Um, and then finally, he goes and sees it in the wild one day at a hospital and finds out 80% of the kids who go into it have to be sedated because yes. they're so scared of it. It's an incredible story. And he, re, he just reworks it with the like, instead of like hypothetically, oh, what's it like for a kid to go through this? He's like really diving into what it's like for a kid to go through this. And they redesign the thing to look like a pirate ship. And it's like yeah. this adventure. And, and out, out the other end, this kid's here. He over, instead of overhearing kids crying about, I don't want to go in it. He overhears kids say, that was so fun, mom. Can we come back tomorrow? You're right. And a radical change by tapping into what's actually going on for people. Huh? I love how you brought that up. What a, what a beautiful story. And it's uh, these these opportunities are all around us um, in every aspect of our lives and in our business. There are opportunities for us to be able to have these types of disruptive innovations. No kidding. Well, thanks again for your time. Uh, we love having you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's really been so fun. That was part two of our interview. If you missed part one, please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview. As always, please check iCollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest. 
And if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the charity Child Rescue. Go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans. 30% of Americans who are planning home improvements of $5,000 or more will pay for those renovations with a high-interest credit card. That may not be a great idea. A better idea may be to take cash out of your home with a Quicken Loans 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 4.375%, APR 4.65%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate subject to change. Pay 2.13% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 30. 